welcome to this podcast from Christchurch Blackpool. For more information, please visit ccblackpool.co.uk. So we're carrying on in a series that you've started already about meals in the Bible. And um, today, if you've got your Bibles on you, if you want to turn to the book of 1 Kings, um, and we're going to go to chapter 19, we're going to have a look at um, a really fascinating portion of scripture. We're going to look at um, the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah's life is littered with a few significant meals. And um, I'm going to focus on one of those meals in particular uh, this morning. But um, I also just want to quickly tell the story of the other meals as well, because they're quite significant. Um, I don't know how much you know about the story of Elijah, but Elijah is one of the prophets that comes when the kingdom has divided and broken. So you'll know King David and his son Solomon, and you'll know that the kingdom was united at that time. And actually, after Solomon's reign, his two sons, and it resulted in a divided kingdom, and actually a lot of rebellion by the people of God against God. And Elijah was a prophet who came to speak God's truth against the tide. He came to bring truth in a truth-starved place. He He came to prophesy against kings who uh, were were uh, wicked. And in fact, King Ahab, this is the king that um, you see Elijah interacting with. This is what it says in 1 Kings 16, verse 30. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now that's quite a big statement to make about a king, isn't it? He did more than all who were before him. Um, in evil in the sight of God. And, and actually what you see is Elijah, um, uh, he, he, he comes against King Ahab and the incredible beauty of God's love for his people is that there's always an opportunity for Ahab to repent. And um, in fact, what happens is Elijah says that there'll be no dew or no rain until I say. And just consider that for a moment. You've got this man of God who says basically, I'm going to say when rain or, or dew or anything will come which will feed the land that will result in crops that will, that will enable any life to come. In fact, what happened was a famine for three years. And you're like, wow, Elijah was anointed by God to proclaim a famine in a land. Like, phenomenal power. And in fact, what we see is his first meal is provided by birds. He's told by God to go away to a little brook, a little place, and he's fed by ravens. And uh, God basically teaches him to rely on that provision. Incredible. He he doesn't have any guarantee of a meal other than what God has spoken to him. Other than God saying, I will feed you there, he has no guarantee. He's just got birds who daily, twice a day, better than Amazon Prime, deliver (laughs) Amazon Prime, I've got to know our delivery drivers very well this year. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have as well. But anyway, twice a day, they deliver him meat and bread. And even even when you look at that, just the mere fact that meat was there for a, someone at that time to have meat daily was a big deal. To have meat twice daily, it's almost like a feast for Elijah. This is rich provision from God and uh, quite luxurious, you could argue. So this miraculous provision is, is where it starts. And the brook runs dry, and actually God speaks to him again. And he says, get up, and I want you to go to Zarephath. 
because this is where your next food is coming from. So first he gets fed by the ravens, secondly he gets told to go to Zarephath. Now the reason that is significant is that was in the region of Sidon, and if you know anything about Sidon, well Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who is a huge troublemaker in this section of scripture, that's her hometown. <laughs> so he takes, God takes Elijah to the hometown of one of the people who's persecuting him the most and will persecute him the most to be nourished. He takes his into enemy territory. Elijah's taken into enemy territory to be nourished. And how does that nourishing happen? Well, incredibly, there's this beautiful story of a widow, and we're not talking about this today, but what, what a beautiful point. Um, here, you've got a widow who's got enough to make one small cake of bread. So it would mean probably not even enough for two people. We know that she had a son, and essentially Elijah says, no, I want you to make me that cake. Now, that's not because Elijah was really rude and he wants to steal this widow's last bit of food. It's because Elijah has heard in faith that this widow will provide for you that this widow will give food. So again, another what Elijah does is rather than just relying on birds, he actually draws people into the miraculous provision of God. And this widow basically gave, gives the last of her flour and the last of her olive oil to feed Elijah. Out of her absolute little, she gave her all. And then God miraculously never allowed her jars of flour and her jars of olive oil to run dry. That's a beautiful point, isn't it? You know, when we give our little, God is faithful. And God is faithful to his widow. And in fact, um, you see other miraculous moments there when actually her son drops dead and Elijah raises him to life. Um, incredible moments, really. And then, and then what we see is there's a little bit of a gap and there's a bit of an event in between Elijah and the next place where we see God providing food for him. And it's a big moment. It's a big moment in biblical history. And I don't know if you know your Old Testament really well, but you may well, even if you've not been around for long, might have heard of this story where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, who are the gods that Ahab was, uh, was worshipping. And what you've got is you've got this showdown, this huge showdown, uh, where, where essentially what they say is they have a competition between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And you've got a hundred prophets of Baal and you've got Elijah on his own. And you've got two bulls. And what they say is, right, we're going to have a competition. Whoever's God burns up this bull is the real true God. And what you've got is this amazing um, time where you, Elijah says you go first, which is always a good idea in a situation like that. I always think going first in that context would be a bad idea. But he goes, you go first. And um, and what they do is they run around, they chant, they call on their God, they cut themselves, and they get more, they go for hours and hours, and Elijah starts taunting them, says maybe you need to speak louder, maybe you, maybe Baal is, is sleeping, you know, um, all the rest of it taunts them, and nothing happens. And yet, this beautiful moment happens where Elijah, you almost think this crowning moment of his life, all of a sudden these miracles that happened in private, where he'd raised a boy from the dead, where he'd seen miraculous provision from birds, where a widow, widow's um, jars of flour and oil never ran dry, and then all of a sudden you've got this moment where publicly he is standing before people and he prays, and more, more than that, 
Before he does that, on this wood pile, he fills it with water. He makes it harder for his God, if you, if you were to put it that way. He makes it harder for Yahweh to do it. fills it with water. And then he just calls and says, God, let it be known this day that you are the one true God. And what happens? Fire falls from heaven, consumes the ball. This incredible moment of victory. All the prophets of Baal are killed and hunted down. And this moment where you just go, oh, wow, brilliant victory. Incredible moment of glorious victory. And this is where we come up to Elijah's next meal. And we're going to read in scripture. So if you come with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're just going to read out the first eight verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, within 24 hours I will kill you. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was in his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God, or Mount Sinai, is the other name for it. We'll know from the story of Moses. It's just a dramatic, rapid turn of events. He turns from faith to fear within an instant of hearing news from Jezebel. You know, from this private faithfulness to then this massive public display of glory, it's like almost sometimes we can see that when those public big moments happen in your life, they're almost like the most dangerous moments. It's like the most dangerous moments when the greatest victory comes is just after it. And this is the case here. In fact, what you can kind of see, and I don't know whether or not you feel this as well, but in Elijah, I kind of see a bit of myself. I see, like, his stress bucket getting fuller and fuller and fuller during this time. I kind of see him, like, in this provision, in this war with, with the prophets of Baal. I don't think it was all totally easy. I think the end result was great, but you can just see the tension rising, the focusing coming on him, and it's building, and it's building, and it's building. And then this one last thing, in fact, if you look back through the scripture, there's no hint, there's no hint that Elijah is going to suddenly get scared. There's no hint that all of a sudden it's going to be too much for him. Like, quietly builds, quietly builds, quietly builds, until this one moment. It was almost as if, and I don't know if you've done this before, but 
Um, personally, I, when I drive my car, generally I try and fill it up with fuel. Don't know. Are you one of those people who goes like a quarter tank? I'm going to fill up the car. Or are you one of those people who gets a quarter tank and go? I've got another 150 miles. No, I haven't. I don't know. Which one are you? <laughs> well, I know in the past um, that there is a bit of a generalisation, but my wife is more of the latter, and I'm more of the former. In fact, there was one point where I genuinely didn't know whether or not my wife knew how to open the petrol cap on our car. Um, and, and I discovered that she did, which was wonderful. <laughs> but there was genuinely a moment where she was going outside and filling up the car, and I was like, do you know how to do that? <laughs> but anyway, I remember this one particular occasion where uh, the classic, where you, you jump in a car on your driveway, and um, and actually, I, the, the reality was that the light blinked, or I got the bleep, or whatever, but I just assumed I'd probably have a few more miles in the tank. I, I actually didn't. <laughs> I actually didn't. And the car, the car does this funny stuff, doesn't it? It sputters a bit, it goes like that, and then carries on. You go, oh, that's weird, what was that? And then all of a sudden, nothing, nothing there. And it was almost like, I look at Elijah, and I think it was almost like that moment where it just, the gas had run out, everything was working fine. Everything was okay. There might have been a tiny little splutter, but then the gas just went like that, and that's it, and it had to stop, it was almost that level of stress, it's like the fuel tank ran empty. And the moment it happens is what we see with Jezebel, in fact, the Bible talks about fiery darts from the enemy. In fact, it would have been quite a vivid, a vivid picture of what it meant to have a fiery dart. It would have been maybe dipped in poison or something like that. It's the idea that a dart that penetrates gets through, you know, breaches the shield, breaches the, the breastplate and it gets through. It's a fiery dart that penetrates and has a toxic effect. And in fact, this is what happens with Jezebel's words. In fact, we can experience that. We can have moments, we can have comments, we can, we can, we can go through a situation where we feel we've done really well and then someone will criticise harshly and we just go, oh, and it shouldn't hurt us that much. <laughs> it shouldn't hurt us that much, but it just sticks. It just hurts. It's just painful. Maybe you grew up in a situation where you had a parent who has said things that have been like a fiery dart that have stayed with you your entire lifetime. I'm, uh, I'm 40 this year. You wouldn't believe it, would you? Because I look so fresh-faced. But I'm, I'm 40 this year. And I'm still gobsmacked at the influence my childhood has on my godliness today. <laughs> just brokenness. Gobsmacked that things that were said to me as a kid still have this self-fulfilling nature in them. You'll never amount to, you're no good at, blah, blah, blah. And yet somehow as a 40-year-old who's been a Christian, who's belonged to Jesus, who's free from that, yet still, those fiery darts can really hurt. Oh, ow. You know, more than that, I wonder whether or not for Elijah, he was looking at this spectacular victory where Yahweh proved himself. And you're like, right, there is no question now. I mean, I, I would, there's been moments in my life where I'm like, can everyone see the glory of God now? Can we all just agree that's right? Can we all just agree that's right? And I imagine Elijah would be in the same position. I don't know about you, I'd like my first response 
would be to, to think about, just what, did, did you not see what happened? You were absolutely annihilated. You were crushed. Like, there would be this deep disappointment. That, like, can you not see? I wonder whether you've had that relation with me where something's plain to you, something's obvious to you, something else, as much as you try and make them understand, as much as you want them to see the truth, as much as you want them to capture something of the heart of, of what is true and what is real, you're like, why can't you see? Why can't you see? Why is it so clear to me but not so clear to you? When we, when we experience brokenness and difficulty in relationships, when someone's behaving a certain way and they don't understand the impact it's having on others, why can't you see? When someone needs to trust in God, and you're just like, don't worry, God loves you. And you're like, oh, I don't know if God loves you. God loves you, can you not tell? It's frustrating, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but that's disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing when those moments happen. It's disappointing when things don't turn out just as we expect, or just what we want. You know, after that victory, maybe Elijah was hoping to settle it. Maybe he was hoping to have a time of peace. Maybe he was hoping for repentance and hoping he could find home and settle down and chill out a bit. And we just had a big old barney on the mountain. God's one. Can we not just chill out a little bit now? And yet, still there's this brokenness that doesn't bring rest or ease. It's disappointing. It's, it's hard. It's not what you'd imagined. And do you know what? Sometimes we can come to God with these disappointments and just wonder, God, why? Why are you doing this? And there's a few different ways to deal with this. The first way is a really, really, really well sensible way. The first way is to disagree with God. <laughs> and say, God, respectfully, I disagree. <laughs> um, you can just, and actually, the reality is this is where most of us live most of the time particularly if you're given to living in anxiety and worry and fear. Actually, the truth is most of us aren't happy with the circumstances we've been through, aren't reconciled to the brokenness we've experienced, aren't reconciled to the fact that things that are the way they are, and that it's disappointing and frustrating. Another way to deal with it is to try and explain everything that God does. Now sometimes this is sensible and this is helpful. We can, we can actually go through some disappointment or struggle or difficulty and we can see God in it and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. We can say, I've experienced this pain, this disappointment, this suffering, this struggle, this heartache and I can see a little bit of what God is doing through it and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. We can sometimes say, yeah, I've experienced this suffering, but it's made me stronger. Or I can see that that person wasn't able to experience God this way here, but I can see how God is doing something, and it might end up here, and you can see God at work. However, it's incomplete. None of us are actually God, and none of us understand his ways, and none of us can always explain everything that God is doing all the time. Sometimes we simply have to accept that God is God and he knows what he's doing. And I don't know what that is right now. If you've ever read the book of Job, I think it's a, a beautiful encouragement. It's a, it's a story 
about a man who, who experiences the most deep kind of suffering. Fascinatingly for me, um, it's one of the earliest, even though in your Bible it's not chronological, your Old Testament's not chronological, but it's one of the earliest parts of Scripture, the book of Job, which in and of itself I think is really interesting. If you've got 40-odd chapters talking about suffering <laughs> right at the start of Scripture, do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like a big deal that God has put that in the Bible as he has. But the, if, if you're given to wanting to know 2 plus 2 equals 4, in terms of, this is why I've experienced suffering, and I know God's about that, and therefore I'm happy, you will be really frustrated at the end of Job. Because <laughs> the answer basically is, God is God, and he does what is pleasing to him. You know, as his followers, we need to learn that if we need the answers to everything, we haven't, we haven't got a brain big enough to understand the wisdom and enormity of who God is. And actually, we need to trust Him. You know, when we don't have an explanation, it can be tiring. We're looking for one, it can be tiring, it can be exhausting, it can rob us of joy, and it can, can actually build fear. We're constantly looking for an explanation or a reason, we're putting our hope into the next thing. We're saying, Well, I think this is what God's doing, so maybe this is what He's doing. And we're like, Oh no, it's not what He's doing. It's just another disappointment. And in fact, not something you hear regularly, but. <laughs> In Proverbs, you, you can put this on your fridges if you want at home. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's, it's just the truth of what it means to. So where do we put our hope? Well, the thing that Elijah does in this story, which is, which is fascinating, is his response, which is fear. He goes from faith to fear. He suddenly is fearful for his life. He's fearful about tomorrow, literally. He, his way out of it is to escape. Escapism is his way out. So firstly, that was physical escapism. He went out into the wilderness. And for us, in our culture, we've got a lot of opportunities to escape, whether it be um, watching the entire back catalogue of any series on Netflix, or whether it be uh, some people giving themselves to drink, or to drugs, or to really hard work. We can escape the the realities of life that we can be in. But the fascinating thing with Elijah here is that he also escapes from community. I don't know if you noticed, but he it says in verse 3 of verse 19, it says he left his servant. Now this is significant because up until then we didn't realise he had a servant with him. And in fact, there's a lot of speculation about who the servant is. Some people think it might be the boy that he rose from death, for instance. Some people think it's someone who just came with him, but whatever way you spin it, he had a bit of company. And this moment comes where fear comes, and actually his first instinct here is to run away and to get out of community. Just to be on his own. Leave me alone. I don't want to answer the question, just leave me alone. I need to be on my own. He withdrew from people, he went to be alone, and in fact, we could say here that Elijah, he, he is, um, he's not only escaping from um, from the fear of the threat of what's going on, but he's escaping from his calling and his identity, which is to be someone who speaks up for God. He's like, I've had enough of this job. I've had enough of that. I don't want to do it anymore. It's like his circumstance all of a sudden that he had faith for 
when he defeated the prophets of Baal, all of a sudden his circumstance that he had faith for has disappeared. This is depressing, isn't it? Sorry about this. And it gets worse. And it gets so bad, so bad, but literally the only way out he can imagine that, that would be better is just, God, just take me now. I'm done. I am finished. I've had enough. Don't want to live anymore. How is it that someone is turned from faith to despair so quickly? And you know, for many of us, we have been there. Many of us have flipped from a place of trusting God to a place of utter hopelessness in an instant. Now, this scripture should be a deep encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, because we're going to see how God responds to Elijah in this moment. It's bleak, isn't it? It's bleak. So my next point is his fuel tank is empty. He's out of gas, but he comes into grace. He comes into the loving arms of God who does some very interesting things with him. What we see is this brilliant turning point where he comes and, and actually uh, you've got this moment where he's attended to by angels, obviously sent by God. And um, what we see first is God gives him space, which I think is a really good parenting lesson potentially for us. God lets him travel a whole day into the wilderness. He's not on his back saying, where are you going, Logic? Where are you going? What are you doing? What are you trying to do? Where are you going? What are you doing? I think you're running away, I think you're running away. He's not like that, he gives him space. It's important, brothers and sisters, when we're in desperation or difficulty, it's important that we're given space to process emotion. Important that we're given space to say, I feel really disappointed. <laughs> God does that with Elijah. And the next thing, you think, well, maybe, maybe he would turn to something really deeply spiritual this moment, God. The next thing he does is he lets him sleep. How often does a good old sleep just make things a lot better? <laughs> just lets him have sleep. And then he wakes up, and then what does he do? He makes him breakfast. He has a sleep, and he makes him breakfast. We can't underestimate, brothers and sisters, the powerful nature of the natural essentials that God has given us. Good sleep, good food, <laughs> a bit of company. In fact, you see this littered throughout scripture. In fact, Paul's advice to Timothy, alongside lots of deeply spiritual stuff, is take a little wine for your stomach, for your frequent ailments. You actually see this moment in where Peter denies Jesus, and, and actually he's the Peter who's like, I will never deny you, Jesus. I will never betray you. I'll never speak badly of you. And the next thing you know, actually, he's put on the spot, do you know, do you know this man? And he denies him three times, as you, you probably know, and actually Peter is, is just ashamed of himself. He's failed, he's, he's, he's fallen short of who he thought he should be. And the next interaction Peter has with Jesus, as you probably know, is basically not, oh, Peter, where were you on that day? You said you weren't like that. No, he's actually making a barbecue on the beach for breakfast. Don't you want to have a go? Oh, I was just wondering if you want some breakfast. Actually, don't know if they asked. 
things like that back then. But in my head, they do. Um, so, you know, did, yeah, I was just making you some breakfast. Do you know, we have a God who tells us, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. Wow. Don't have a God who has a go at you when you muck up catastrophically. You have a God who lets you have a soup and makes you breakfast. Wow. So that's sinking from heaven. That's the kind of God you have. He doesn't batter you. He doesn't have a guy who gently, lovingly restores you, provides for your basic needs. He's gentle and lowly in spirit. And I just think it's incredible. You've got this beautiful love from God. I don't know about you, but I find it amazing that we have a humble God. The Bible talks about, in Philippians 2, talks about the humility of Jesus. So get this, God who is the most glorious, the, the, the sinless one, the one who's above all, who's omnipotent, powerful, glorious, is our greatest example of humility, of loneliness. It's like the, the gentleness and the kindness and the, the, the wanting to build up the nature of who Jesus is in these moments is just so precious. You know, brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what your troubles are or your difficulties are. I don't know if you've been through an Elijah moment or you've been through one recently. But you know what your anchor point is? The gentleness and loneliness of the safe use has come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. I'll build you up again. I'll make you strong. And in fact, I'd even argue that this example that God sets for Elijah is foundational for the next stage of what he's about to do. I've got, I've got a couple of minutes. But what we see after this moment where there's rest given that, you know, God feeds him, there's a question which God asks him, which is a great question, which is, why are you here? And I always think it's fascinating when God asks us a question, because it's not really for him. We're not informing God. We're not, we're not informing him as to where our hearts are, because he knows our hearts better than we do. He's given us space to ask ourselves that question. Why, why, why am I here? Why did I fall to pieces? <laughs> why did I turn from faith to fear? Who is my God? I, I can have faith. I can trust him. I know he'll provide for me. I remember the ravens. I remember the widow. I remember all the miracles. I remember that moment. Who have I got to fear? Why are you here? God's asking it to provoke a faith response in you. You know, why, why are you where you are at at the moment? What struggles of faith do you have? I wonder when Ben asks you to pray for people. I, I have people in my mind and there's faith wrestle every time. Where the moment he said it, I was like, I've got two people in my mind who I've got faith wrestle every time. I'm like, oh, press into it. And actually, Scott, why are you here? <laughs> who do you believe? Is he the everlasting God? He doesn't grow tired or weary? Is he the God who cuts our sin as far as the east is from the west? Is he the one who's faithful? Is he the one who conquered the grave? Is he the one who's coming again to make all things new? To wipe away every tear? Do away with injustice? To bring joy for eternity? Is that the God who I said? Yes, it is. 
It's to stir faith. Why are you here? And then what we see is this beautiful moment where I always think this is a little bit like when you go to a conference and um, Elijah goes up onto Mount Sinai and we see these kind of earthquakes and this roar and this hurricane and God's not in all those big extravagant moments. And then what we see is this gentle whisper and God's in the gentle whisper. And you know, we can have big, high experiences with God. We can have those, but actually what God gently whispers to you in the quiet place is so precious. And brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the power of what he whispers to you in the quiet place. And then what happened here is, um, sorry, the, the other thing I wanted to say is within that whisper, it's a whisper that speaks his love and his kindness. Psalm 18 says, he rescued me because he delights in me. That's the same that you have. He delights in you, that's why he rescued you. And then what we see is, is actually Elijah's to press on with confronting Ahab, which is what happens. And in fact, wonderfully, Ahab is given another opportunity to trust in God, which he does do. And incredibly, it's almost like Elijah's moment where he had the greatest victory, but after that, it's almost like God brought him low. It's almost like this moment where he was humbled as well, where, you know, he could have, he could have been given to conceit at that moment. He could have been given to, oh, I've destroyed the prophets of Baal, look at me, I'm kind of a big deal now, kind of a big deal, defeated all the prophets of Baal, everyone is talking about Elijah the Bully, thank you very much. He could have been given to that. It was actually in that moment where he experienced the gentleness and the loneliness of God and the love of God for him in his most fragile, weak state that actually you can just sense a humility in, in Elijah that's birthed, that's, that's there. It's just a, one, a humility that would bring Elisha on. It's a humility that wanted to serve others and include others. And actually, even that example, we're told Ahab follows the most wicked king of all time, sees something in the glory of God, in what Elijah has done, and he follows the example, and he humbles himself before God. You can read about it in the following chapters. And in fact, so much so that the Bible actually says God didn't bring disaster on him at that time because of the humility of heart that he showed. So I'm going to finish up, but I'm going to finish up with a couple of uh, challenges for us because... I think it's really precious to think about disappointment, failure, and lost hope in the context of a great God. And I guess my question for you is, in life we experience disappointment and failure. It's part of living in the wilderness. In fact, these years are described as wilderness years. In fact, if you were to align it to like the Exodus story, We've been rescued from Egypt with mighty miracles. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been set free. You're a son, you're a daughter. You've been loved. You've passed through the waters of baptism. And now you're in the wilderness where you're serving God, you're loving him, but you're not quite home with him yet. You're not quite in the promised land yet. That day will come, but yet the wilderness is kind of a place. It's an illustration of the place we live. It's a place of trouble. It's a place of confusion, it's a place where enemies attack us, where wild animals are, and we struggle. And actually, the question for us today is, 
do we trust God that he knows what he's doing in this time? Have you managed to process your disappointments, your moments where it didn't quite work out as you hoped, your moments where things aren't quite what you thought they would be? Maybe that's personal ambition, maybe that's family situations, maybe that's church situations. We have a God who is worthy to be praised and rightly to be trusted. Amen? Amen. Let's put our faith and trust in him. He is about a glorious purpose, about glorifying his son on this earth. Let's pray and we'll finish up. God, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you're gentle with us. Lord, you give rest to our weary souls. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, let go, Lord, of disappointment. Lord, you would help us, Lord, to, Lord, be Christians who, Lord, have faith in you regularly, consistently. Lord, let us not get to a point where our gas tanks are completely empty and we're unable to find joy or hope. Lord, let us quickly turn to you now. I pray, even now, that we just come to you and we just say, Lord, we trust you with every difficult thing, with everything that hasn't quite worked out, with everything that we've hoped we would have achieved but we haven't, with the place that we prefer we would be rather than we are now. Lord, we say, actually, we choose to trust you know what we do. We choose to trust, Lord, that you are God in heaven and here I am on earth. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, you're about an awesome purpose. Lord, I pray in the future, Lord, as as, uh, Blackpool Church, Lord, as we continue to see your gospel break out, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you keep us humble before you. Lord, keep us, Lord, before you in a spirit of faith, Lord, in a spirit of goodness, Lord, even when we step out, Lord, in great victories ahead. Lord, I pray, Lord, help us, Lord, to resist the fiery darts of the enemy. Lord, I pray that you help us to cut our shields up and not be impacted by, Lord, the wickedness of an enemy who would want to trip us up. Lord, knock us off course, Lord, but give us faith to endure through those circumstances. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, downloads and podcasts, please visit ccblackpool.co.